Kubernetes has created a widespread system for deploying and managing infrastructure. As Kubernetes has been increasingly adopted, companies are thinking about how to leverage that common layer of infrastructure. With the common infrastructure abstraction of Kubernetes, it becomes easier to adopt other abstractions that are uniform across the entire company. And this has created a market opportunity for products such as a service mesh. A service mesh consists of sidecar containers that get deployed alongside services in a distributed system. These sidecar containers often get deployed in the same pod as the other Kubernetes containers. A pod is something that contains multiple containers or just one container. Each sidecar container is used as a proxy for all the communications that go through the service that it is deployed with. This consistent proxying layer provides each service with benefits such as security and routing and telemetry and policy management, and we've done many previous shows about service mesh. Istio is a service mesh that was created and open-sourced by Google. Istio is built around the Envoy service proxy sidecar and a control plane that manages the Envoy sidecars. Since the launch of Istio, some of the Google employees who were working on Istio have started Tetrate, a company with the goal of commercializing Istio into a product that enterprises will pay for. The market demand for service mesh has been proven, but there are many competitors to Tetrate. Istio is open source and can be commercialized by other companies, as well as cloud providers such as Google and AWS. Linkerd is a service mesh built by the company Buoyant which was the first company to focus exclusively on this space. There are other companies that are expanding existing products into becoming a service mesh. These are companies like Kong and Nginx and HashiCorp. Zach Butcher is a founding engineer with Tetrate, and he joins the show to discuss the market for service mesh and the plan for Tetrate to build a business around Istio. Quick announcement, we are hiring for two roles, a content writer and an operations lead. If you like to write about software engineering and you have some familiarity with software engineering, maybe you're a computer science student, maybe you're an experienced engineer, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And also the operations lead role is for somebody who is interested in learning more about how to run a business, how to run a podcast, and who wants to help us improve our operations. You can also send me an email if you're interested in that, Jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Zach Butcher, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start with the subject of microservices because we're at KubeCon and I know that most people here believe that microservices is something that everyone should work towards yeah. having. The idea of putting a lot of effort into building a microservices architecture, this has a cost. So if you put a bunch of effort into replatforming your entire architecture into Kubernetes and a CICD workflow that's kind of complicated, and you adopt a service mesh, if you want to do all that- It's you, a lot of complexity, yeah. It's a, Not only is it a lot of complexity, it's an opportunity cost mm -hmm. because you're giving up building business logic yeah, yeah and customers may or may not want yeah. a microservices platform they probably don't even care yeah. all they want is more functionality and and replatforming doesn't really help with that why should we spend so much time or who should be spending time 
building out a microservices architecture? Yeah. So just like any technology, right? You don't want to go grab, like in our industry as software engineers, we really like to grab the new shiny toys because they're new and shiny and exciting, right? doesn't really work for a business, right? So a lot of, so as we look at what actually matters with respect to this decision, am I going to take my monolithic architecture that I, or, or whatever my current architecture is that I've been running, that I hopefully am pretty comfortable running and fundamentally change it and add in a, probably a lot of complexity. It's a really tough thing to weigh. And by and large, the overriding factor that, that we've seen from, from our customers and just talking across the industry is this kind of idea of uh, development agility, right? We want to go faster is, the, is kind of the, the calling card. And the idea is this. My customers want features. They don't care what, how I'm running my infrastructure. They don't care what I, but they want to do more things in my software today. And I try, so I try and get my developers to do more things in the software today, but they wind up because of the way that we've decided to deploy our software is like one bundled unit together. And maybe we don't, we haven't invested in things like high level traffic control. Maybe we're only doing, you know, we don't have fine grained control to be able to do things like canaries or, or gradually deploy new traffic. So changes are kind of risky. Because this big blob that, you know, 10 or 20 different teams have contributed to this big monolithic thing has to go out. And I know I made some changes to my part of it. I'm sure some of the other teams made changes to their parts, but hopefully it all plays well. And so this becomes a very risky thing, right? And, and really the, the result is some ossification, right? I can't, because it's risky to change and it's, you know, my customers want new features, but they want to be able to use the product first. <laughs> Right. And so if I'm having outages, if I'm if I'm not able to serve my my product because I'm updating and updates are risky and, and, and they go bad, then I'm not in a good state. So I have to be able to de-risk change. I need to be able to decouple my teams from each other so that they can move and operate independently. Right. Not everybody needs to change at the same rate, but some pieces of the product probably need to undergo a very rapid rate of change. And you don't want them to be gated on everybody else. And you don't want to force everybody else to go up tempo because of the one team, right? And so this is really where the idea of splitting these, these components apart at a deployment level, right? Literally taking the code and splitting it into separate pieces that run separately and that communicate with each other. And, and because you're splitting them apart now, so that is the fundamental challenge, right? So we need, we need to split them apart so that teams can go faster. And that introduces effectively all of the complexity that KubeCon here, we're talking about the, the you know, Istio, the project we'll talk about in a bit that I work on uh, helps to address, right? This, the fact that suddenly now, because I've decoupled my, my programs to decouple my teams, the network is a fundamental part of my, of my application now. So this is a nice story. I've definitely heard it before. And I know it has been applied successfully at Google, at Netflix, Maybe at Uber, although I think Uber has they've I've talked spoke to an engineer there who is a little bit remorseful about the the, the microservices decision. I don't really yeah. know. I mean, I honestly don't know really what the alternative is to a microservices architecture. I mean, it's maybe like being comfortable with having five or six giant monoliths and then other smaller services. Like, yeah, it, and the reality is, I think it's it's some mix. So Larry Peterson is the guy that is the CTO of the Open Networking Foundation. And they're responsible for a bunch of telecom networking standards, but they're also played a really big part, for example, in the development of software-defined networking. And that is one of the key enabling technologies of, of, the, of cloud, really. 
And he, I think, actually gets at kind of what you're a little bit of what you're talking about in a very succinct way, which is he talks about the <laughs> we disaggregate to innovate, but we have to reaggregate to operationalize. And this starts to get at some of some of this kind of core idea of why do we have to do this process? And we see this repeated across industry. We as software engineers, we complain about the cyclic nature of our industry. Right. We complain that Kafka looks a lot like service buses. Right. And like, you know, but and we learned that enterprise service buses are bad. So why are we back into this architecture again? And the answer is that we're not really back into the same architecture. We've learned uh, and made changes along the way. Right. We go through this cycle where we have a system. We, we really only know how to operate holistic systems. That's why monoliths are so nice, because they're one piece. And so they're, they're easy, easier to understand and operate. When I disaggregate it, when I break it apart, I can change it more rapidly, but it's so hard to operate. We're really, really bad. And when I say we, I mean like across the board, not just talking about microservices, but in general in software engineering and human, yeah, I mean like human culture, we're not as good at dealing with aggregate with disaggregated pieces than we are with holes, right? We're used to lumping things together so that we can mentally treat them in one way. And so this is kind of some of that fundamental tension, I think, is that we see in our software development is this cycle of, well, we went to microservices and we had to do that because we had to innovate, because we had to disaggregate so that the individual pieces could move faster. But now it hurts <laughs> until you talk to a software engineer who goes, I don't like the service message. I don't like this, this microservice idea because the operational tools aren't there, right? Like we can barely debug concurrent programs on one computer. And now you're saying we're going to split it apart onto, you know, in different computers and they're going to communi communicate over the network to, to do this stuff. It's a real tooling problem in part. And some of that acute pain, at least, I think that we hear about in that's that knee jerk reaction to the to the architecture. Right. What I'm trying to understand is how successful has this microservices mass migration been? Because. I feel like there's some survivorship bias. Like we yeah, come, we, sure. we, we we come to KubeCon, and we see five or six talks about you know like Lyft's journey to microservices, or you know Zendesk breaking up our monolith into microservices, and uh, to until we have you know ninety nine percent of our services, you know each occupying one percent of the overall infrastructure, and we've got it evenly distributed. Yeah, that's perfection, like, no problem. Yeah, perfect, yeah, perfectly load balanced, and you never hear the stories of we spent two and a half years trying to make this thing work and ended up going back to COBOL. Yeah, totally. So I mean, like, so I can say from like the perspective of the products that Tetrate is building and shipping, I'm building a monolithic binary right now, because it's easier to operate, right? The again, the operational side of it is is easier. I haven't hit the pain points that that would necessitate needing to split up into into many different binaries yet. Right? My teams are still able to ship features independently of each other fast at a rate that is fast enough that we feel comfortable, things like that. But from an operational perspective, it's just easier. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people, right? I really do like the by and large use case for microservices, I think really is a small, a small number of companies, a small, and, and it's those ones that are, that are larger. Again, it's ones that are large enough to have the organizational pain yeah. of how do we get these teams to operate together, right? right. It's, it's really, it's really not a technical problem, right? Microservices do not solve any, they do not really solve any technical problem that you have. And instead they introduce a whole lot of them but they solve organizational problems that you have. And that's why people are moving to them, the organizational side of it, right? And it's the, the technical side is a cost that we have to overcome. 
to enable the the organization, right? And you know, and there's a lot of ideas around the different. You you let off with the what are some different architectures, for example, that people are looking at, right? And there, this is where there's a lot of work in this space, right? Yeah. So we were talking before we started recording. We mentioned just a little bit about Knative and like OpenFAS, for example. And so the whole serverless paradigm is one uh, reaction to this this pain, right? Uh, and it goes maybe even more extreme, <laughs> you know, in, in that we're going to take our units of code that we cut up and we're going to cut them up even smaller. That's not necessarily required for a serverless, right? But, you know, so that's one reaction that people are having. Another reaction is the return of the monolith, right? And again, this is, I view this as part of that cycle of, of disaggregation and reaggregation, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing that we go back to a monolithic deployment, if we can maintain the advantage of having decoupled development teams. And it turns out that there, you know, there's, for example, sets of techniques that we can use to do this, right? So I can have everybody develop independent services, but maybe stitch them together into one binary that, you know, in the main and make it communicate locally rather than over, over a network, right? And now I have some of the operational benefits of having a monolithic deployment, but I can maybe get also win some of the benefits of having my teams decoupled from each other if we can work out that sticky mess around how we do deployments and how we we keep the rate of change fast enough for the for the entire organization right you're coming at this from a pretty interesting perspective because you worked at Google you were working on Istio in the early days you worked with Varun who I've interviewed on the show a couple times yeah. and eventually he left and you left you guys were both part of the founding team of Tetrate, which works on service mesh and related technologies. And the advantage of being on your own in a startup is you are forced to go and talk to customers and really extract the truth from them because it's existential. Exactly. It's existential for you as a startup. Whereas if you're at a big company, like I'm sure you guys were trying hard, but you don't necessarily need to get the straight answers because your salary is going to be there whether or not. Yeah. That's one of my, you know, this is one of the fundamental takeaways uh, about Tetrate, the company coming from Google, right? Because both Ruben and I came came from Google and he had been there for a decade, right? I I had only been there for three and a half years. Uh, But, you know, both of us have been there for a while. Uh, But you go talk to an Amazon engineer and almost every single sentence has the word customer in it that they say, right? If you go talk to a Google engineer, you never hear the word customer ever, <laughs> right? And this was one of my... One of the ad side of the house. Exa- well, yes. And the one side of the house that is customer-oriented is ads. And they're good at it. Yeah. And the rest of the organization is not because that's fundamentally not what they've been built and equipped. Well, their customer is the engineer. Exactly. Right. And so, the, yeah. And and selling selling directly to engineers that live inside of your organization who are not paying you money precisely. is very different than selling to enterprises. Precisely. And so, this was one of my single biggest takeaways personally leaving Google, right? So, Google is a, a magnificent place to go learn a whole bunch of different things. But for me personally, this was the most important thing that I took away was that, you know, Tetrate had to be a customer-focused company. It is an existential problem, exactly like you say, right? So when you go out and have those conversations, when you talk to these enterprises and, and you say, look, I know there's a lot of technological change going on right now in your infrastructure. You're looking at Kubernetes. You're looking at three gigantic cloud providers and a bunch of adjunct cloud providers. You're looking at a bajillion little vendors that are selling you monitoring software and logging software and this software and that software. And then you go into security and you got another 500 grand that you're going to need to spend. Yeah. 
when that's you, some pretty cheap security you're getting. Uh, that's heavy. Okay, sure. Yeah, 500 grand. That's much. That's not very realistic. But so, so, but your specific category is kind of new. The idea of yeah. service mesh. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to them and you say like, what do you actually want? We are a quote unquote service mesh company, but maybe we can do other things. What do you want from us? What do they say? And by the way, what kinds of enterprises are we talking about? Are we talking about banks? Are we talking about insurance yeah, companies? Yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah. So. Our, our customer base is predominantly financial tech companies, in, in particular, like payment institutions. Gigantic old companies, lots of money to spend, yep. good reason to spend it. Yep, exactly. And so those are the groups that we talk with. And by and large, when we, when we go talk to them, they need a couple different things. So traditionally, the, the team that we interface with is actually a new one. So exactly to your point. So historically, these three verticals, the security, networking, and observability, uh, have been independent and they've been handled independently across the organization, right? Actually, to the pain of the organization most of the time, right? How many? How much do you go talk to to people in these in companies with more legacy workflows, and you know have to get around the security team to get approvals to, and they're a big roadblock, right? And it's like, oh, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I talk with customers and they talk about the security team with dread, right? Because they're the people that say no. And to go get a change in the network, you know, and so if I'm a service owner and I'm just trying to get my feature to my user, I have to go get the security team to approve my new thing. I have to go get the networking team to go make my changes. I have to go talk with the observability team to set up all this stuff, right? And so what we're seeing, and so these have historically been siloed and arguably to the detriment of the business. And so one of the key changes that we're seeing with a lot of the people that we're interacting with is that a new team is starting to, to be created in these organizations, which is the, the platform team, if you will. So now a group has, has been chartered in, in a lot of these large organizations whose purview is go make these things coherent, go figure out, hey, that cloud thing is happening. Hey, this Kubernetes thing is happening. Hey, we have these data centers now that are, that are in VMs. We realize that we need to modernize. We realize that our competitors are investing in modernization. They're building out. They're becoming t- technology companies in some sense in payments. Right, right, right now in, in the financial space across the board, across most of the verticals in, the, in finance, it's a race to become a, a technology company in some sense, right? And so they're realizing we need more agility. We need to be able to go faster. We need to be able to do these things. And so they're starting to build this platform team. And this tends to be a new team that is, that, that is relatively recently chartered. And they're given this purview to interact across these pillars to, to start to try and f- figure out how we make a coherent platform for our developers, right? And so when I go in and talk with them, typically, so obviously because of the market, the industry, the skew is towards security, right? And so in particular, one of the, the really interesting things is the idea of application level identity, right? So today, when we talk about security postures and things like that, we tend to talk about network-based security, right? You know, this application sits in this subnet, and we've allocated them, you know, this, you know, slash whatever, it, you know, they get these eight IP addresses, right? And that, those are those nodes. And we're going to open up the physical firewall to talk to its database, which I know is dedicated to these four IP addresses, right? And, you know, maybe it's a little bit more coarse-grained than that. But by and large, it is this, you know, we have physical firewalls connecting subnets together. And this is not amenable with a cloud world. This is not amenable with Kubernetes, where your network, where your identifier, your network address can change. So one of the one of the key features that's really interesting as we start to try and bridge these heterogeneous environments is as they're trying to figure out how do I run workloads in cloud and on-prem together and make them talk. Application level identity, having your job present a token that you can authenticate and that you can authorize against that you trust 
the application what it is, and you don't have to trust the network, is critical. Right. Is is a is a key feature for them. That's one of the and then a knock on benefit of that. If you're going to assign identity, the way that Istio does it in particular implies that you can do encryption in transit as well. So the, those identities that we give are, are in the form of certificates. So the the other benefit is for a variety of regulatory requirements uh, for regulatory reasons, you need encryption in transit, right? And so the those two things. Hey, I can get identity that gives me policy that I can write that starts to become dependent of the network. And this is very new for security teams. And so, you know, there's typically, and so part of this is having the security teams start to realize that they can start to phrase policy in better ways mm. or, in, or in ways that are more expressive. So let me see if I understand you correctly. So the security product that people are asking for is a way of assigning identity to applications, first of all. Yeah. And I think that's uh, encompassed in the Spiffy Inspire project. Uh, totally, it is too. Yeah, exactly. Also, though maybe that's... So I guess you'll use the Spiffy, for example, the spec. So Spiffy right. is the specification, Inspire, right. the implementation. Istio also implements Spiffy to do identities, for example. Right. Okay, great. So so it's basically a spec for here's how you assign an identifier to an application that can be used throughout your infrastructure yeah. for various things, such as security policy. You need to assign certificates to those applications so that they can do TLS handshakes, right? Exactly. And so this is where like, so Spire, what Spire does and what the the, the certificate rotation side of the Istio control plane does is take care of giving you those certificates that have your identities inside. So that, when I talked to the, uh, the console service mesh people, yeah. basically like, you know, console... They took a key value system and kind of rebranded it as a service mesh. Yeah, but, totally. But basically, they, they said that the reason that they did that was because when they talked to people, they like, you know, it's HashiCorp. They're super smart. They're figuring out, like, what do people actually want from a service mesh? Like, service mesh sounds like something we should do. We're like the kind of nebulous but unicorn. Yeah, they're in a spot to be able to do it, right? They have the technical chops to be able to, to sell it legitimately. They have, they're one of those few companies that, that can come out with one and people would believe it. Exactly, exactly. They have technical chops. People respect them. And, and, and yeah, so it's, it's perfect for them. But when they looked at like, okay, there's all these things that these service meshes are doing. When you yeah. go and talk to talk to the Istio people, or you go and talk to the Linkerd people, they list all the, there's this like laundry list of things they do. Totally. Load balancing, A-B testing, green, blue deployments, red, white deployments, black, orange deployments, you know, like this and that and sliced yeah. bread. And, and ultimately what people want is security. And what does security boil down to? policy management and uh, application identity. Well, so maybe one of the dirty secrets of, of networking is that networking has always been a security cell, right? I mean, like what it, VMware arguably is, uh, the, the big thing that they did was make software-defined networking or like a, a mainstay for, for people, right? And how did they do it? Micro-segmentation, security. Networking has always been a security cell to some degree. Now, I do want to say, though, you know, you asked what's the driving use case for my set of customers, right? Yeah. And so what we hear from them is, I want all of them. But right. this is what hurts this most. This is at the top, right? Yeah, okay, right. And and this is actually, I think, a pretty key point too, because like uh, adoption is very, really hard. One of the keys for adoption is yes. pick one exactly one pain point, right? Because basically, the the delta, the the increase in complexity to add a feature, not that big, but the increase in complexity to start using it for the first time, big, 
So you need something that's sufficiently painful to overcome that initial adoption pain. And once you once you've done that initial adoption, the incremental addition of features is pretty easy because all, because the delta to learn is pretty small. So that platform team, let's say the platform team and an insurance company or yeah, a bank that's developing their mission is to figure out infrastructure that fits across the entire organization that they can they can sort of slot into uniformly across the the organization. Um to some degree, so there maybe the charter is not so much uniform uniformity as figuring out how we're going to develop all new software. Oh, okay. And then figure out how we're going to take what is legacy and okay. bring it into the new world. Okay, so they're saying for all greenfield applications, we want to have some standards so that yeah. the greenfield so like applications this, are, don't have the problems of the legacy yeah. stuff. So like, hey, you're not going to deploy your greenfield into a VM. Like we're right. going to Kubernetes now. Right. So you're going right, to deploy right. it. So new applications go there, right? Right. And then for as, example. And then as they prove that out, maybe they can apply it to older applications. Exactly. Too. Because there's a there's a strong desire. Right. It's not like uh, just because the, the teams are in legacy land, they're not totally happy there, right? They would right. like to be able to go faster. They would like some of the features of the service mesh, for example, right? Like one of the, it's really funny to me, a lot of times we'll go in and talk with customers and one of the things we'll show is like some of the observability side. And they go, no, nah, we have, we have, we have observability. We have some we have insert vendor name. We got an obvious. Yeah. Insert, no, but like insert telemetry vendor, right? Okay. Splunk, single FX, whoever. We don't need the, we're, we're not really interested in that. And then you show, oh, but look, we can actually have high level metrics. And they go, whoa, I didn't know that that's even a thing that we can have. And now I can give it to my default. So it's a really exciting, it's, it's an exciting thing. Right. Okay. So they, they have this platform team and the platform team can win over the security team and have standards going forward. And the security stuff that you give them, how hard is it to create a service mesh or a platform system for deploying stuff that has those security properties, the policy management properties that they want? Is this a reality today or is this something you're working towards? So it's a reality in some environments and we're working towards it in others. And part of this is just the security teams themselves need to, to convince themselves of a new model, right? So this, this application-based identity is fundamentally a different model for, for implementing policy and, and, and security, right? And there's a whole lot of complexity in there, right? So as soon as you start issuing these identities, you run into the problems of how do I authenticate the workload? How do I know that I'm issuing the right identity to the right thing? There's there's all these knock-on problems, right? That's why Cytel exists. That's why Aspire is a, is a product that, you know, and, and all of that. It's a really challenging problem. And so it's a, and so it's in a state of flux, right? And so security teams would be negligent if they dropped their existing security policy and went whole hog into this new thing, right? That like what regulator that would be crazy to do from like a regulatory standpoint, for example, because this is a new uncharted world where, but an auditor knows the controls for, for traditional network security. So the reality is that today it's, it starts to be a mix Right. And a lot of the things that we wind up discussing with, with a lot of these is how do we do things like in the new world, we use application identity with, with, from Spiffy in, in some form with this or Spire or something like that. But when I go talk back to legacy land, we need to do a swap of identity so that I can, I can integrate in with the legacy view of the security model. Right. So that's one of the transitory states. Is that, it, people that, is that like a translation layer or like something additional? It depends on the, it, that's one of those things that winds up being pretty like organization specific because, uh, you know, your network is one of those things that's always, always a special snowflake, right? And so like I've seen a bunch of different things from, from different users that take 
you know, some of them, it's simple things like VPNs or natting and, and stuff like that. Some of them, it's it's more sophisticated. We're going to go in through ingresses and we're going to do real often. We're going to real in quotes, but we're going to do as if we it's an end user. You know, we're going to treat them as end user clients calling in and the whole spectrum between, right? So there, I guess your original question, though, was how real is it today? Yeah. So these policies exist today. You can author them. It's fine. We'll, we enforce them at runtime. That's great. And really, the hurdle becomes getting the security team to buy into an updated model. The platform solution that you're selling these people or advising them on or consulting with them on, are they using Kubernetes and Istio and like yeah. sidecar containers? Yeah, yeah. Typically, uh, so most of these these platform teams that we talk to want to use Kubernetes for the the new platform, right? The greenfield, uh, yeah, the greenfield, and and most of the, and all the ones that we have already have a substantial workloads in Kubernetes, right? So because it was greenfield two or three years ago, right? And so they already have a pretty big split footprint between those two. So I'm sorry, what was the first part of your question? Well, no, no, that that answered it. I mean, I was basically kind of hinting back at the be the beginning of the conversation, like you know, have these old legacy enterprises that have tons and tons of infrastructure and tons and tons of greenfield mileage ahead of them, yeah. are they going into quote-unquote microservices? It sounds like yes, they, they are. are. Yeah, for sure. And it's a so reality. So those companies are exactly the ones that need the organizational. So those companies have historically been the ones that are pretty ossified, right? That are yeah. that are hard to change, and right? And so again, they see that it's an existential problem for them. They have to become nimbler. They have to become technology companies in some sense. Right. And, you know, companies like Square and Stripe are phenomenal examples that put the fear into the light and they look at, you know, so payment processing companies on the East Coast look over at at those and they go, I need to get, uh, you know, that's what I'm playing against. And so they look at it from a holistic perspective. I need to skill up my developers. Part of it's just even the hiring side of it. Right. To some degree, if I really want some of the best people, I need to be using some of the cool technology. Because the best people want to do that, right? It's a hiring tool. It's a combination, right? It's this holistic, I, you know, from the perspective of my company, I need to make this transition. And there's many different pieces that belong to that, right? And this actually addresses, like, this move to the, this adoption of, of cloud native technology, this move to Kubernetes, this, these things enable that transition, that, that strategic goal across a bunch of different dimensions, right? So, so Hiring, culture. Uh, absolutely. I think I get it at this point. I mean, you're making a very strong case for the idea that microservices is something that you go for, for because of organizational reasons, and then it creates technical difficulties, but the technical difficulties are worth overcoming because you will get a stronger organization out of it and exactly. ultimately better technology out of yeah, it because exactly. of a better organization. Exactly. Very specific question. Let's say a company adopted Kubernetes three years ago. The footprint has been growing since then. Like some enterprising set of engineers got Kubernetes off the ground. And they started. They started saying, "Like, look, our pl- here's our platform plan. We got this platform plan for Kubernetes, and and, and everybody throughout the organization going forward has implemented uh, new applications using Kubernetes, using containers." Let's say three years into this, the, this company starts to say. We want to start having a sidecar proxy. We want to start having Envoy sidecar proxy, and then eventually we want to have Istio. Uh, so we want to have we want to have Istio in addition to the Envoy sidecars that are going to be proxying all the traffic between each other. How hard is it to deploy sidecar containers throughout that kind of organization? Yeah. So this is actually one of the kind of the key pain points of Istio, right? It's one of these things that we never that we 
still have not really addressed fully, right? And which is the, the day zero is still kind of tough. Day zero of Envoy. Of Istio in particular. So Envoy too. So, and just to be clear for, for listeners, right? So Envoy is a component in Istio. So Envoy itself, open source project, very successful, is used by a bunch of different service mesh implementations, is used by a bunch of people building their own bespoke mesh, in quotes, because the degree to which it's a mesh or not depends on their organization. But a lot of people are using this as a proxy independently. Istio basically provides the batteries to, to program Envoy's, right? And so the your original question was was how the, hard, how, how hard, hard is it, is it? Yeah. yeah specifically so, I was specifically thinking about the Envoy deployment process but I guess, yeah, I, guess I guess most of the people who are deploying Envoy it's in service of Istio yeah well and a lot of them are deploying it themselves in in so like the depending on your like if you're in Kubernetes like you said for example that's pretty easy right because the primitives are already in place to be able to do that in the platform right to just throw so in I Istio. just put the container right I put the container in my pod spec. Right. Hey, it turns out the pod spec can have many containers. You just yeah. put a second one, right? That's the mechanics. The challenge becomes, is the semantics right? <laughs> have I programmed Istio to be able to work with my service correctly and not break it? And that's the pain point, right, today with, with Istio. So there, uh, one, the, maybe the most classic historic example has been port naming. I want my, I would like to be able to proxy HTTP traffic in my application. Turns out that if you want to do that in Istio, historically, we have always required that you na explicitly name your Kubernetes port HTTP dash something. Don't care what it is. Uh, but we use that as a signal. And so one of the classic pain points was, hey, I wanted to try Istio. I went ahead and just deployed the sidecar on all my services, and none of the traffic works. And we go, oh, did you label all the ports? No, I didn't know I need to. Right. And so there's these tripping, there's these, these tripping hazards, right? And so one of the, one of the most acute pain points for the project for, for the past two years or so has been these, these day zero, day one pain points around how do we actually enable adoption, right? And so it's, unfortunately, it's taken quite a lot of time to, to get there, but especially in, from 1.4, which just came out last week, uh, Istio 1.4, and, and then some of the, in 1.5 should have even more changes that start to alleviate a lot of these introductory problems, a lot of these like stumbling blocks that, that you would typically hit on, on these initial adoption journeys, right? Uh, but it, it turns out it is quite a bit of work to, to adopt this, right? And so again, we, I think I said earlier, the most successful adopters I see pick exactly one pain point. The most successful adopters I see additionally start gradually, right? You don't just turn it on everywhere you pick your your victim or your volunteer <laughs> carefully first, sure. right? And and you do this gradually. This is how, but this is really how any large change Certainly. in any organization Absolutely. happens, right? And so the, it's the not example, really, it's not novel, right? The example I always remember is, you know, the classic Netflix migration to microservices, mm -hmm. which began with the jobs board, the, yep. the Netflix jobs board. That was, the, you know, Netflix had a monolithic architecture and uh, the first thing that they move. Oh no, I'm sorry. This is Netflix moving to the cloud. The yeah. But it, it, well, it's true. Same idea. It, yeah. Same idea. This because the same idea is any big technological shift. You start with something that has low surface area exactly. and low risk to the organization. Exactly. If your jobs board goes down, it doesn't matter. Exactly. You know, if you want to deploy a service mesh, you probably start with the jobs, jobs board, board also. also. Like, exactly. Who cares? Exactly. You get the jobs board up and running. You get the you know whatever. Test the test the number of jobs board instances you can set up are they all observable through istio can you change their security policy exactly. oops we made a mistake the jobs board's offline for five minutes nobody noticed precisely so yeah, yeah. and then you roll it out incrementally from there right and that's right. 
And so, yeah, that is what we have seen as, as far and away the, the, the best way to adapt. So when Istio came out, like, I guess two or three years ago, when was the big, the big... Yeah, uh, 2017, GlueCon in March of 2017. Okay, tw- March of 2017. And then I... Th- was it the KubeCon that summer where they really made their big launch at yeah, KubeCon? Yeah, that was, yeah, that KubeCon US where there, it felt like IstioCon almost. IstioCon, yeah, right. Yeah, that was maybe the peak. I was actually just talking with some people about that exact event maybe 30 minutes ago. Maybe the peak difference between hype and Istio the yes. project versus where the capabilities of the project actually were. It was so hilarious because... It was painful. It was so bad. It must have been really painful for you because something went... What went wrong? Something went wrong with the marketing function. It was like... It was like somebody in Google marketing got too much budget for Istio or, or like... Maybe it was the IBM marketing folks, actually. Exactly. Yeah, it just took off, right? It like it for yeah for whatever reason. What you know for, at that particular event, there were quite a few contributing factors, contemporaneous, you know, at that time that led into this, into it, you know, being kind of the B start coupon that year almost, right? And yeah, I think actually that was probably the most detrimental thing. It was that really could have happened it to was, the project. Period. It was a total banana. Peel. I, I, there's a, a company that I uh, talk to pretty regularly these days to try and help out with with some of their Envoy adoption in particular. You know, and I and I you know say, hey, y'all should you know if y'all are using Envoy, y'all should really look at Istio. You know, as you know, and course. they're like, we've been reading Twitter, and well, no, they no, even worse, they said, oh, well, we already tried it back at zero three. Oh god, I'm never touching that again. Oh right. right, and so it's like, but no, that was you know that was three months into to the life cycle of a project. You know, zero three. Right. You know, Istio is six months old then. It's you know three years old now, almost. Actually, uh, it'll be. Three years in uh, two weeks, I think. In so just real, real quick, tell the story for people who don't know. Just basically, Istio was given a ton of fanfare, a ton of promotion at this KubeCon, and this was when it was at whatever zero. I mean, it was like zero three. I think zero, actually zero three. Yeah, it, it didn't was work. Super it was really days. hard to deploy, and this was being advertised as the infrastructure solution of the future. It's the next Kubernetes. Like, oh right? man, it's this like is the, definitely this is, this is the thing. Definitely the thing you want doing your TLS handshakes and all your other security management and your traffic routing and everything. And people are like, I can't install this. Yeah, they got so excited, right? Because they were like, oh, the you know, and you go to the talk and you hear the laundry list of features, the pages and pages, and you go, I need exactly that. Like, I need exactly the observability. I need, you know, like as a developer, you sit there and you identify with it deeply and you go try and use it and you burn yourself, right? The other thing that made it look really bad was that the conference was promoting Istio so much and Linkerd was over there in the shadows yeah. and Linkerd was like, people actually use this in production. Yeah. yeah, I know. I have so much respect for William, right? Like, cause he, uh, the whole, he has done a phenomenal job with, with Linkerd and with Buoyant. I, I have, especially now that I've left Google, I have so much more respect doing the, doing the startup game, right? It's hard. Right. And so I, I have a lot of admiration for him having to navigate that, right? He, he was saddled with <laughs> this big gorilla that came in on, and again, again, the hype really, bit, you know, was painful for him too. Even though they had a product that worked, Istio, because Istio became because of the marketing function there, because Istio became synonymous with service mesh in so many people's minds, and failure, and failure, and hard to <laughs> use. Actually, ended up being really good. He paid well. Yeah, exactly. So, the, yeah. yeah, but yeah, but in the short term, there, you know, he he was up against it, trying to tell no, it's Istio <laughs> that's hard to use, not. And so I have a, I have immense respect for him, and that was exactly some of the kind of subtext there in that in that KubeCon, right? As people were looking around going, well, why are they talking about Istio when when Linkerd is the is the one? So but at the same time, it was easy to tell that this thing was gonna work out. Like even back then, it was like, well, okay, 
we all know Envoy works really well. Yeah. And we all know that people want this service mesh stuff yeah. at this at some point. People, this is very... Well, of course, we were in the heady highs of Kubernetes just winning the orchestrator wars, right? right? And so now Google has the next thing. What was it like being at... So you were at Google during the container orchestration wars? Yeah, yeah, sure. But I, I wasn't really working in that side of the house as much. I was in GCP doing enterprise-y things there. Okay. <laughs> well, what was it like seeing that war even for I, oh, I, I mean I, I mean i got my popcorn and watch because i didn't have a horse in the race then i enjoyed it i it thought was it was so pretty fun. cool yeah you know i enjoyed talking you know looking at it just as a, as a software engineer you know i'm fortunate that i'm i live in in san francisco and so i have some you know i have good friends that are that are sres at a bunch, a bunch of different places and so i got to i got to hear some pretty firsthand accounts of the of the war right and so i you know for me it was always really entertaining to see did you go to conferences during that time? No, I didn't go to conferences oh, man, at all. It was either, hilarious. Right? So, oh, I'm sure. The, the funniest part was like w- walking around the expo hall and just seeing the the deep confusion. Just like you talk to Mesosphere, they tell like you service mesh today. Cut, well, <laughs> actually, not really like service mesh today. T- today, it's like pretty well defined. It's like you've got Linkerd over here, guess, you've got yeah, Istio over here, you've got a million Istio providers, and you've got one Linkerd. Pro- well, I guess you know. Well, but there's like things. there's mesh and, and mesh dry traffics. Uh, oh yeah, the new thing and, and, and the Kuma Kong, and there yeah. The Kong so thing. there's like more there's more entries coming into the field for sure. So I think it'll be interesting to see if if there is confusion or not. I think you're largely right. So I think in particular, the fact that Google is behind it coming out of Kubernetes in particular in that timing there with the project did a whole lot with respect to exactly what you just said, which is the general perception that Istio was going to be the one. And the other side of it is just look at the money behind it, right? right. It's Google, IBM, the, you know, like the who else is going to come along and fund the thing? Like the only other players in the space that, that would legitimately be able to fund competition there are going to be the other cloud providers, right? Yeah. I mean, the other difference between the service mesh wars and the container orchestration wars is container orchestration wars, it felt felt like for as long as there was a container orchestration war, none of the banks and financial companies wanted to move. They didn't want to move. They're like, no, we're not going to invest in Mesosphere. We tr- we did this with OpenStack. Like, yep, we made this exactly. mistake with OpenStack. Yep. And so, again, in the same way that I think some of the halo of Kubernetes extended to to Istio with respect to people perceiving that it will be the the winner, the same thing happened with decision maker, at least my perception is the same thing happened with decision makers looking at the mesh, right? They say, Hmm. right, because a lot of them are literally, because a lot of these people are the Kubernetes team now, right? And so they, they looked at and they said, well, that's what I bet on. And now I've got my job here. Right. So I think that, yeah, that halo effect again from, of Kubernetes okay. on to... And, but people are uh, not gun shy. The people are not deliberating between different... No, not in my point. experience, right? So certainly people have looked at different ones, but but by and large, I, and, I, and again, part of the, part of this is just bias. If you're if you're going to come talk to Tetrate and, and to me, you're probably going to ask us about Istio. Uh, so talking, certainly well, there's some I'm, bias there. I'm talking to William later this week. Good, yeah. And I am going to ask him, like, how are you going to compete with the Kubernetes community that seems like they're all in on Istio. And if they're not all in on Istio, Google will spend money until they are. Yeah. Like, uh, how are you going to compete with that? Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, uh, so this is one of my, my favorite war games, right? Cause I happen to, I happen to be intimately familiar with this space. And so I, and now being at a startup, I, I have kind of an appreciation there. I think it's a really fascinating question, right? I am very excited to see, 
what they decide to do and, and what tactics and strategies they decide to, to use there. I actually think that there are quite a few different avenues that they could take that, like that would be very successful. In my opinion, looking at it, I think that, and you know, I, you know, I don't have super insight into their business, but I look at it and go, there are two clear ways that, that you can win uh, right now. One of them is talk about usability. <laughs> talk about usability from dawn till dusk, right? Like just usability, usability, usability. And then the second thing I think... Wait, meaning that Linkerd is more usable than Istio, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Use, my thing is usable. You can get it deployed, right? And that's pretty fair. They have, they have put a lot of effort into solving those problems, right? That is one of the bigger indications, I think, of maturity in a project, right? Yeah. So production totally. readiness oh, and maturity totally. are very different things. Totally. People may not understand this, but... Building software that is usable is really hard. Exactly. Right. And so, and they've been doing it for, you know, for years longer than, right. So they, you know, cause, and you know, a lot of the core of Linkerd's original functionality came out of Finangle, right. And so yes. they're, and so like a lot of, it had been vetted and, yes. and done. Yes. Iterated for years, on many right? times. Anyway, so usability, I think. And then I think that there's still a lot of room actually to target verticals especially in Kubernetes. And I think that you're going to see a proliferation of, of vendors that are starting to target verticals and that are starting to, that will start to tailor offerings towards specific like hippo, sets of industries. Like compliance or something? Yeah, that, that maybe is one. I think maybe the ML stuff is pretty interesting, right? So the TensorFlow and the, and the oh. machine, you know, so that's a perfect example of a project that is doing, that's doing a vertical, right? We have machine language and model serving on Kubernetes, Right, the cube, that's Kubeflow. Uh, yeah, Kubeflow. Exactly. Sorry, the the name escaped me there. So Kubeflow is a perfect example of a vertical product on on a platform. Right, we built this product around shipping machine learning. I think that there is a lot of room to do that style product using a mesh. Right, uh, and I think that that's a and that's a place that I you know I. Uh, we'll use my educated opinion here and say, I don't think that the cloud providers are particularly going to, or they're going to move into those spaces last, right? They're going to, they're going to take their time going into those. Yeah. Well, they got so much other stuff to work on. Exactly. So from my outside view of, of buoyant, I would love to see them do that. I think that that would be a a way that they could be really successful. Uh, They even just announced a product today, actually. I didn't see, I didn't see what went live yet. Yeah. So I I don't remember what the link is offhand, but uh, we can, you can put it in the show notes. What does it do? They're doing basically management over top of a mesh. So some visibility, some process, that kind of stuff. Right. And so that's a, and so that's a whole, I think that's actually really where we need a lot of tooling built out, right? So this is, that's right in the vein of what Tetrate itself is doing, right? So we're doing, we're really focusing on the, the management side. We talked about mesh is really a people problem, right? It's not a technology problem. And so, so management is really, management planes and, and the management of, of this infrastructure is really where the, the technology side meets the people side. Okay, so this is the idea that whatever service mesh you're doing, you're using from a performance perspective, from a deployment perspective, Linkerd will figure it out, Istio will figure it out, this stuff will get figured out. Where the real battle is going to take place is the developer experience at the control exactly, plane. Exactly, right. And and how can you actually make that tractable, right? Because again, like we said, you know, no business, my customers don't care about the fact that I moved from monolith to, from monolith to a bunch of microservices. Yeah. My customers care about the fact that they get to see features faster. And the way that I do that is I make it easier for my developers to build and deploy software that my users can touch, right? So the we know that developer experience matters a lot, but 
uh, you know, you look at AWS and the developer experiences. I mean, so I think Google Cloud, the developer experience is significantly better than the AWS developer experience. But but like, of course, AWS has just more traction, more footprint, and it's it's more well developed. Maybe it's more sturdy. AWS does a phenomenal job of meeting customers where they're at and giving them things that are familiar to them already. It is a lot easier to be a network admin with my all my Cisco certifications and go do my same job in AWS because I still need to configure VPCs because we still need to do some of those things than it is to come to Google where Google says, no, it's good. The, the network's flat. Like, you don't need those things. Like, we can do it a different way, right? And so this uh, is actually, I think, some of the uh, fundamental tension, right? This is a, it's a fundamental strategy choice between those two cloud providers, right? The, we talked earlier, Amazon is fundamentally customer-focused. That manifests as not really being the player that's driving forward the, the bleeding edge, right? Amazon is not known for their right. bleeding edge innovation. Right, right. But what they do do better than any other company in the entire world is commoditize software, right? right? They, they take software that has been proven, that has been built out, and they bring it to the masses better than any other company in the entire world, I think, right? Google does a fundamentally different strategy, right? They, they say we want the, and, and it's because they have a fundamentally different view because their customer is the internal engineer first and foremost and not the external customer. So they don't care about meeting an external network admin where they're at and at the knowledge that they have today because that's not the knowledge that they have and that's not what their customer needs. And so you wind up part of where this manifests is in the UX and in the in the set of primitives that you deal with in the platform. Yeah. Right? Uh, Google Cloud UX is great in yeah, my, my experience. Yeah, me too. So now, you know, I, I no longer work for GCP and I've had to be a client of both. And I can say for sure, I, I much prefer the, the primitives in GCP, right? It blew my mind that AWS, I couldn't, I and didn't have one console. It, well, I didn't have one console to see all my stuff. Right. Why is the console scope to a region? What? And so there's just like, there, there were a bunch of things I look at and I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. And no, so I, I think this difference in, in approach and strategy is pretty fundamental. And I actually think that you can look at, uh, and there's some interesting parallels there, bringing us back to a service mesh discussion between like Linkerd strategy versus Istio strategy, mm-hmm. for example, right? Uh, Istio is very much a manifestation of how Google likes to do engineering. Mm-hmm. Right? It's complicated, but it's really powerful. <laughs> There's a lot of sharp edges to right. cut yourself with, right? right. Linkerd is, uh, is much easier to use, right? But uh, maybe it doesn't scratch all the itches that you need. Maybe it doesn't cover all the cases. It's less featureful in, in some capacities, right? And so, uh, and, you know, it certainly is not going to do things outside of Kubernetes for you, for example, where, you know, Envoy was built to run on EC2 originally, right? Lyft, Lyft uh, right. ran Envoy's original, right? The original incarta- incarnation of Envoy is as edge ingress proxy on EC2 VMs for to handle Lyft traffic, oh, right? Oh, so that's right. So like if I have some pivotal Cloud Foundry installation that's all on VMs, I could adopt Istio. I could have Envoy proxies on my... Yeah, so if we're doing like PCF, there's maybe some some extra caveats there just okay. because of the, the, the environment that, that Cloud Foundry sets up. But like Cloud Foundry actually is an interesting example because they've been uh, early Istio contributors from the beginning, uh, specifically with an eye towards using Istio in the implementation of Cloud Foundry to, to, to do some of the routing and, and networking things that, that end users see. Mm. Okay, well, we don't have to go down that yeah. rabbit hole. So it, it, when you were at Google Cloud, you were straight-up engineer, right? You mm-hmm. were, yeah, yeah. It seems like you've really enjoyed the shift towards more of a go-to-market 
kind of strategist and yeah, sales, a, sales engineer. You have, I mean, you have to wear a lot of hats. Yeah, it's a small company. You wear a lot of hats, right? I, I still, you know, what definitely what makes me happiest is sitting down and, and getting to do some hard design and, and ideally writing some code. But yeah, I, I enjoy the, the other aspects of it, right? I enjoy getting up and, and talking with customers and talking with users and hearing about the problems that people have. I enjoy some of this talking like we're doing now. You know, it's always <laughs> kind of fun, right? Uh, it's an it's a interesting and different thing, right? But yeah, you know, it's small company, you wear a bunch of hats. That's the, that's just kind of how it goes. What's the hardest part of building an infrastructure company? I mean, I can, I can speak for us, I think. So we, we made some pretty interesting decisions with, with respect to how we build Tetrate, a company, the company, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've talked a little bit about this with Faroon in, in past episodes, but this is typically how I, how I talk about it, right? When we talk about tech startups, Every company needs to take risks, right? A startup, the whole premise of a startup is that you take a risk. That's how you make money. Most technology startups, the risk that they take is, is the technology that they're picking, right? I feel like we're pretty secure there. <laughs> I don't feel like it's very risky. Now, obviously, the, you know, it's a little self-serving. Uh, but, you know, I look at Envoy. I think it's pretty rock solid, right? I look at Istio and, and I'm pretty happy with, with where Getting we're at. It. You know, there's, there's things that need to be fixed. But from the perspective of I need to enable large-scale enterprise customers to use this stuff, Istio's in, in not a bad spot today, right? So I, you know, I feel good about our technology picks. I think the real risky pick that we have is a, is a company. And so the, the hardest thing for us with respect to this build out and this thing uh, is the fact that we're totally remote. And so we're globally distributed, right? So I have 27 people in 11 countries and, and uh, 10 different time zones, right? Okay. So maybe not quite the answer you were looking for no, with no, respect to infrastructure more. companies. Tell me more. But you know, that's a fundamentally different thing. I actually firmly believe that that will be how basically all companies work in the future. It really is awesome. For sure. But oh, man, you it's are... so hard because so much of, of human interaction is is predicated on body language and, and just being in the same, right? We're, we're recording this podcast in the same room together because a podcast recorded where we can look at each other while we talk is way better than one where we're recording it over a phone or, or and not just because the recording equipment is better, but because the whole conversation is better because we can see each other, because we can interact with each other in a, in a more tangible way. Yeah. And humans are just built to do that, right? And so one of the, the key challenges for a totally remote company then is how do you start to enable that? How do you how do you enable intentional interaction between people? There's no water cooler to go chat about the weekend, right? Because because you're in India and I'm here, and so if we want to chat, if we just kind of want to shoot the shit about about you know our, our lives, we have to intentionally take time to do that, right? And so and that manifests in a bunch of different ways, right? So just in general, communication has to be incredibly intentional, and and that's a hard and, and different challenge, I think, than, than many other companies, right? And so then on top of that, there's just the engineering side. You know, there's plenty of other things that are hard about an infrastructure company, right? The, the engineering part is, is challenging. The problem space itself tends to be a little bit deeper and, and more technical than, than many other uh, problem spaces, right? So there's all these knock-on things, but at least from, you know, that, that any infrastructure company has to deal with. But at least from our perspective, the thing that makes it hardest, but is also, and I think, maybe one of our single biggest benefits as a company, full stop, is that, that we're totally remote. What do you think is going to happen to to all of Google's napping pods and lunch buffets <laughs> and like bouncy castles yeah. and like, you know, buildings all over the world as people realize all of these perks don't add up to 
the level of happiness I get from sitting like, at home. Exactly. Yeah. In front of my so, own computer. Yeah. So I can actually speak to this in a very real way because I had all those and now I, and now I sit at home uh, and I joked with people and, but I wasn't really joking. The thing that I miss the most is the, the food, man, really, really good <laughs> food. And so there's definitely pluses and minuses to both. Right. I, I think that uh, it's not really for everyone to sit at home and work at home all day. I think a lot of people have a hard time doing that. We, we certainly had had some people that have had a hard time doing the transition to totally remote. Like in general, we, we hire only open source developers or primarily open source developers because they're used to working remotely, right? Uh, it can be a tough change to navigate, right? But I do think that the freedom is massive, right? I love that I can go, you know, if I don't have a meeting in the middle of the day, it's super easy for me to go see a movie. And I have an empty, you know, I have a theater to myself, right? <laughs> or more, more likely. Oh, that's a I, funny uh, image. Yeah, but I'm a big biker, right? So I love biking around San Francisco, right? And so I'll go do a ton of uh, that's my favorite midday bike that, rides. I, right? do, I do this. I go for a run yeah, in the middle of the day. It's exactly it, it, the it's, quality of life. It's so much better. Exactly. So I think that there will. I think that the steady state that we're going to land in is that there's going to be a mix, yeah. right? Of and we have some office space because some days you just got to get out of the house. Right. Some people don't work effectively from home, so you need a space. I think it definitely does devalue some of those perks for sure. Right. But the other side of that is the number of companies that offer those crazy perks like that is basically like five. Right. There's it's the Fang companies. Right. So there's not outside of that pool. It's not as crazy. San Francisco. Like Sure. So but like most startups are doing like the right. It's like Google is like all three meals a day for free, right? It's like egregiously over the top, it right? Uh, certainly there are, it definitely does devalue it some. One of the interesting perks that you can have as a company, uh, so one of the, as a company, one of the biggest expenses that you have, especially if you're in San Francisco, for example, is your office space, yeah. right? Uh, we don't spend money on office space. Totally. Uh, so it makes it much more feasible to start to, to do things to address some of those perks if we want to, right? So we haven't really needed to yet. Right, right, right. But like we can still easily do that and our and our costs are still substantially lower than yeah. if we were all in person just because we're not paying for, for the privilege of having a space, having a door that we can lock, right? That we can share. Now, much of what Google got out of that in-person feeling, and I, I worked at Amazon for a while, and much of what Amazon gets out of this in-person stuff is this cultural cohesion. Yeah, that, that's a big part of it for sure. Yeah. Like like the spreading of values mm-hmm. and and some values which I'm not sure could permeate and exist as strongly in a remote culture. Yeah, and that's definitely part of the challenge is how do you successfully – so like culture, what is company culture other than – the some of the interactions that you have together, right? Uh, and so when those are disparate and you don't have the perk of being in the same office together is that we get to see many of those other interactions that don't involve us. And that is what informs our own how we act, right? Because that is the norm. That is what is accepted in the space. And so, yeah, that's an, another place where, again, uh, you have to be very intentional as a remote company. You have to, intentionality is a, is a really, really critical concept, I think, just across the board. You have to have intentional communication. And part of that intentional communication is consciously enforcing the values in interactions constantly. Like, you have to do these things more and and more cognitively. They have to be more on the front of your mind than in a traditional environment because you have to take those rare opportunities to 
to drive home that this is how we do it. And then the other side of it is just communicating more, right? So part of it is, you know, writing down our norms and expectations, right? And that's a good thing for a company anyway to, to have to, to start to, as long as those are living documents that can breathe and change with as, as the company grows, that's just be a good thing. And so we, we have a mix, right? So it's a, it's a mix of document more, make available communications more with each other, make the, you know, and, and be intentional about how we set culture, right? And that even manifest, I mean, like, and I, I think about this, right? Cause I, I'm, you know, one of I get to, cause I was one of the first engineers, I'm in more of a leadership position. And, and so I think about this constantly with respect to how I present myself in meeting. Any leader does to some degree, right? You have to, but again, with a remote, you have to be even more cognizant of it. You have to be even more in mind, you have to be mindful, right? The intentional, intentionality, mindfulness, however you want to say it, that I think really does boil down to being one of the critical features. And that's challenging on a team, right? That we are not, <laughs> humans are, are t- tend to be pretty selfish by nature. We don't, we don't tend to be pretty, we don't tend to be very good at, at mindfulness in that, in that. And so it has to be a, a practice, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, well, and we and I would argue maybe that the set of values that you have to have in a remote company, maybe you manif- wind up being a little different than the set of values that you have in a, in a in-person company, specifically because of things like that, right? I, mindfulness and intentionality is, is a very important value that does not tend to appear in, in many traditional companies' sets of values, right? A lot of stuff we could continue to explore there. I, I just want to wrap up. Long-ranging question. How do GCP, AWS, and Azure in the limit strategically differ from one another? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. So we, we talked about this a little bit, right? So Amazon continues to do what, what they do best, which is we are going to listen to what our customers say. And when a sufficient number of them say that they want this button, we're going to add the button. And they're, I think they're going to continue with that march, right? I, I don't really, unless some organizationally scarring event happens there, or there's some large change in, in leadership, I, I don't think that that would change. And from their position, why would it? They're, they're the dominant player right now, right? Like we talked about before, Google is fundamentally a technology-oriented company, right? If, if Amazon is fundamentally a customer-oriented technology company, Google is fundamentally a technology-oriented company, right? And so they're going to continue to have really awesome tech, right? I would argue that App Engine today is probably still ahead of its time. And App Engine was released in 2008, <laughs> right? Right, And obviously it's changed in that, in yeah, that yeah. intervening 11 years. Yeah. But, you know, it was a decade, it, like it's arguably, it, five, you know, it's it, many it, years it, ahead it's, of time it's and it's a decade old. It's hilarious how characteristic that is of Google Cloud's presence in the market. Exactly, exactly. And so- It's like, this is the future. Exactly. Google Cloud is the future. It's so, and it's additionally if funny when you, you see- you can walk customers there. Because again, that's the there, thing right. is that Amazon meets them where they're at. And so it's comfy. Google doesn't. Right. And that is the, fu- if Google can figure out how to bridge that gap and they're trying with some of the, they're trying to do that from an organizational perspective with uh, like Thomas Kieran, right? And with the the growth of the sales side. Well, of- Firebase, I thought was an interesting example. Yeah, people, Firebase is a good pe- example of People that. love Firebase. Mm-hmm. And Firebase is a new, it feels like a newish technology. It feels like totally. a fresh technology, but it's exactly what the hipster developers want. Yes. And so, but critically, it's an acquisition. 
Right. So that's not, and so Google took that technology and they've built it and they've made it better and they've made it cool. And they and have I'm, these like, cross cells into the Google ecosystem exactly. from Firebase. Totally, exactly. So maybe they'll do the same with Looker and Yeah, whatever. and like, I, yeah, you can probably rest assured that that will continue to be the strategy, right? They yeah. they want that interdependence. It's kind of an interesting right? strategy. It's a natural, and that's a, yeah. And so they're, they're going to continue to run that down, right? And I think that they will continue to get more traction. There's one, you know, and there's, and there's a lot of small things that manifest there. One of the really nice things about using Google APIs is that they tend to be pretty consistent. I know somebody did analysis of like the AWS APIs. And they, <laughs> and in particular, they were looking all, at... All million of them. Exactly. Exactly. And they were looking... Now, to be fair, Google has hundreds of... I was on the API survey. I was on the API team there. <laughs> oh, so sure. Google has oh, hundreds yeah, of yeah, APIs yeah. too. Right, right. They're public too. And uh, many less than AWS, obviously. But, you know, somebody did analysis of the AWS next page token. And how do you pa- how do you paginate through list APIs in AWS, right? Oh. And there's a table, and it's like the capitalization is different. How many of them have a different field between the return and the next one? Oh. So it's not next page token into page token, or so you know, it's like this mismatch, right? So Google APIs don't have that. They're consistent. They're consistent. The reason they're consistent is because there's an internal process in place to do these reviews that that mandates that consistency. Mm. That is a phenomenal feature that nobody really talks about, but that usability goes through. And so I think that in the long run, what will happen as, is that as developers, where they're at moves closer to the things that Google is shipping, right. it'll it'll start to make more sense and they'll start to get more traction, right? Uh, of course, we're also very, very early into the cloud race, right? Totally, and yeah. we're, we're, we're not 10% in yet, right? So I think I think that will work out well for Google continuing forward, right? And then of course there's Azure, <laughs> and what does Azure do? They know enterprise sales, yes, more than any other yes. thing, right? Yeah. I haven't used their cloud. I was about to say had to use their cloud. Right. That's uh, not quite the right connotation. <laughs> uh, um, but you know they more than e- either of the other two, they understand the enterprise sales motion, and they already have their foot in place in. And particularly in the middle of the country. Okay, right. The middle of the country. <laughs> that's that's the key. And probably in a lot of like international places too. Yeah. Where that, but, that's, they are, but like there are so many people that will never touch Amazon. But Microsoft, they're already using Microsoft. And so they're already like the they're already in the door. They'll never touch Amazon because... Well, for a bunch of different... Right. So like maybe they think they're, you know, maybe they think they're in a competing... competing oh, industry. yeah, that like, one. That right, side right, right, of it. Right. Or, you know, for whatever reason. Oh, hilarious. Uh, right, right, right. No, I think there's Wal- a variety of reasons. I think so. Walmart has like a deep partnership with with Azure for that yeah. very reason. Yeah. So Walmart was the the, fam- the most famous instance of this because, because they tried to make oh, their hilarious. vendors not do it. Right. So, no, I think that Microsoft will continue to run down the, that enterprise sales side. They are very good at that. And I think that concurrently, they will continue to bulk up their operational side and, and build out, right? And so, they're, it's kind of funny because Microsoft, in some ways, I worked in a .NET shop for years, right? In another life, I would have loved to have gone to Cambridge, gotten a, a PhD in type theory, and then gone and worked for Microsoft Research. Right, right. right? Go hang out with and, Anders Halesberg. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so these, Anders was one of my heroes, right? You yeah. know, as a, as a younger sure. engineer, yeah. reading about, and, and so in so many different ways, Microsoft does really cutting edge technologies and really visionary things. And in a lot of ways, they, they do Microsoft Office <laughs> and Outlook. And these institutional things that have the weight of an institutional enterprise thing, and they're not oh, yeah. new and fast, and but they they get the job done. So I think their challenge is going to be how do we kind of bridge these two worlds together, right? Because that's where I think they get the the really right. compelling 
right. things that neither Google nor AWS will do. And so their challenge is going to be, so they have the, the sales motion, right? Like if I were going to build the dream cloud, I would take the enterprise side of Microsoft and I would combine it with the technology side of Google and, and we would go conquer the world, right? But, <laughs> uh, what, what about AWS? What I was saying, you're just like no, but throw it out, throw it all out. They're phenomenal, but, another. They're, but it's not the, I don't think that fundamentally use, uh, use AWS Lambda to stitch your two yes, sides together. Yes. <laughs> well, like I don't, you know, and I don't mean to, to disparage AWS or anything, but they're, you know, if there's, if there's realists and idealists on the engineering perspective, uh, I'm much more an idealist, right? Okay. I want the world to move into the better UX. I think it's. I think that it's absurd so that you, I have to. That I have to like pure VPCs. Like this is 2019. Why do I like? I want these two things to talk. I told you I want these two things to talk. Right. Why do I have to like? Why do I have to do? But you're so you're not enamored of the serverless AWS. Like I think the serverless stuff was pretty futuristic. Yeah. It's no. Like, so serverless that was totally is, novel. Yeah. Serverless I think is really really fascinating. I think that it's a really immature architectural pattern today, and that we need that zero to like. <laughs> The transition from monoliths to microservices is already incredibly hard in large part because tooling does not exist to cope with that. And now you're going to do even more. You're going to take well, it to an even bigger no, extreme. but it's something different. Like the serverless it paradigm. It is and it isn't. So I look at serverless as being two, largely two categories of thing that are conflated uh, or that are frequently conflated together. So one of the categories of thing is I want to write only business logic. That's been a goal of software engineering since we, since, uh, you know, we invented programming languages, right? We, we invented the first one and then we said, oh, this is real bad. <laughs> Let's, let, I want to write, right? Whether or not we ever get to that goal, I don't think any particular architectural or deployment paradigm is, is going to solve that problem. And then there's the other half of, of what serverless platforms are today, which is the operational side. The I want the, it to have uh, logging and monitoring and alerting out of the box. Mm -hmm. I want it to have the visibility. I want to have uh, scaling to zero mm -hmm. and automatically scaling. Right, These are all things, right? So ideal, yeah, I want to be able to scale up and down and hopefully I could scale to zero because that would be really nice if I could. Yeah. So if you look at those two sets of things, so I, so I will, you know, let's discount the business logic only. I don't think that that's a realistic goal in, in the near term. Then we start to look at that platform. That, that is serverless, right? And the, a large majority of the features that are there look very similar to the mesh features. And so then in my mind, it comes down to, okay, so then what is the, so what are the differences here? And, and they boil down to a couple different things. This, this focus on small deployment units, and in particular, the requirement that basically you rewrite code. Any, any new architectural pattern that says, hey, if you want to use me, you need to rewrite everything that you have is a non-starter. What are you talking about? Like rewriting in lambdas? And yeah. Stuff? So like I can't take my monolith and split my monolith into lambdas. Yeah. That doesn't, it doesn't decompose that way, right? Well, okay. So here like the, the, instead you, you get told, no, go re-implement it, right? But I mean, banks are still running COBOL mainframes. They're like, they're not going to re-implement everything to go to lambda. So you need something that gives the feature set of that platform, right? The, 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 you want the auto scaling. You want the operational things out of the box. I don't think that that should be coupled with the uh, deployment unit that is that small. I mean, I, I appreciate what you just said. I think what is interesting about the Lambda model is 
it's basically like, look, if you're all in on AWS, here is a very smooth, interconnected developer experience. Yes. Like, so you that get part of Dynamo it is really DB, interesting. You get DynamoDB, you get Amazon Elastic this and Elastic that, and it's all connected with Lambda functions. It all works fairly smoothly. Yeah. Yes, you have to well, interface. So that was the App Engine cell too, right? App Engine was this whole, if you write Python, but it, but it if wasn't, you write, Yeah. It, it but, was. It was this walled garden they had. It was super walled garden, but it was also like just not as expansive as the AWS yes, vision. The AWS is vision is like, we give you everything in the yes. kitchen sink and tons of other stuff. And like, it's just super interconnected and it's super diverse. And uh, Google App Engine back in the day was like, yeah, just a Python application, which was yes. fine for a lot of people. It, and, sure. And yeah, just I, the, I that that was more of yeah. a marketing issue. But AWS totally. has great, has good marketing so people can actually adopt this. Totally. Anyway, totally. I, I mean... No, I think it's, yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. Reinvent is next week. That's (laughs) not reinvent. I forgot. Oh, God, I thought I was at reinvent. No, like, yeah, Lambda, yeah, I, look, Lambda's are, Lambda in in general, the serverless idea is really compelling, right? Yeah. The idea that we need to be able to, but. It's super proprietary, super blatantly, like, we're locking you in and you are never getting out. You're going to love it. Yeah. And I just think that the, and and then that aside, just the tech, the the mechanics of it today, the units of edit are wrong. The, the unit, so I do a lot of API design. That's, that's part of what I did in Istio. That's uh, in a lot of modeling. I like type theory, like I said, right? Uh, And so unit of edit, what is the thing that I have to change and that I have ownership over is, is one of the things that we think about a lot with respect to API design. Unit of edit in Lambda as it is today just isn't right. And it doesn't conform with the tooling and it doesn't really conform with deployments. So I totally agree that you want this heavily interconnected thing. That's like the, right, that's the nirvana that we want to get to, right? There's the, all the, all the cool stuff that I need to do in my app just works right there. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have to think about it. It's that idea of I that, get to focus way, on the business That's logic. what it's like working at Google, right? You just import a library and it all works magically. No? Okay. Yeah, maybe exactly. Not. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> okay, maybe not. Jeff Dean walks by and he types on your keyboard and yeah. then everything works. Yeah. He's like, oh, you forgot this import. You yeah. forgot to import the magic thing. Yeah. That's one of the things that is most disappointing maybe to people when they join Google is really? that it turns out the sausage factory, like sausage, like making sausage is nasty business and it's messy everywhere right uh i don't know yeah there definitely are you know google has done a good job of handling a lot of the problems that serverless tries to address so some there are like internal projects that are how we you know how you would build software as a developer google today internally and i think those models that they're using which you can extrapolate from app engine if app engine was developed in 2008 now jump forward 11 years if they've been developing at that pace for the same time. And those models center on write the unit that you've been writing, write a service. It should be small. It should be yeah. focused on the business logic. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of those libraries that handle a lot of the, the other things yeah. that have been built up over time, sure. Yeah. Right? But you're going to write your, here, you have an object. You own that object. This service owns that object. Write all this stuff and put it together. And then we'll worry about how it actually gets deployed. Yes. We'll look at the dependencies that you have. We'll look at what it's using. We'll look at the things that it's consuming and, and stuff like that. And we'll figure out where we where we will actually want to do some some deployments for how we want to assemble the binary, things like that. You don't need to think about it. Yeah. That kind of a model is much more compelling because the tooling that I am used to dealing with is the same. How do I debug this binary? Well, I just run the binary and I attach my debugger to it. How do you debug a distributed Lambda application on your develop, on your box? Right. Uh, this was always quit. the problem that uh, that App Engine had. App Engine didn't have local debug. 
Like they, they had a local debug environment, but it didn't match the app engine environment. And so one of the most painful things that we heard from users continuously was this, well, it works in the, in your, in your app engine dev that I ran on my local box, it works, but then I deploy it to the server and it doesn't work. Right. This is a fundamentally hard problem. Uh, and, remote, and it manifests remote debugging. Well, not even just remote debugging, but how do you provide this environment? Because you just say, you know, part of the appeal of Lambda is that it's this highly interconnected environment uh-huh. with all these services plugged in. How do I ever debug that? Like, how do I, what's my developer, like, what's my debug workflow? Mm. It doesn't, like, I'm used to, I'm used to running and processing my terminal and touching GDB. How do I debug it? But if you go with a more traditional deployment model, but you handle a lot of the operational pain, then suddenly you can start to unify this development experience and, and you can start to use the tooling that you're used to, but you can get a lot of the benefits that you may, a lot of the the platform benefits of serverless, right? So if I were going to revise then my two split between, the, you know, to in the three, which is the third one being, you know, your, to your point, kind of that interconnected glue side of it, right? The, the dream platform. Bit. Your cloud nirvana. Exactly. Then no, you know, service mesh like wouldn't address that, for example, or, but... And I think that that is a desirable thing. I don't think that that is necessarily predicated on the, the current incarnation of, of serverless. Zach, great talking to you. Great conversation. Super. We went, we went over, but great, yeah, great, it'll great be a nice, nice incendiary thing to, to end on. <laughs> it'll be, I'm, I'm looking forward to all the, the serverless people. Wonderful. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay.